Welcome to No to NATO, No to War. This is our third public meeting. The first two have now been watched by hundreds of thousands of people, making these the biggest anti-war meetings since the great upheaval in 2003 around the invasion and subsequent illegal and murderous occupation of Iraq. That's because this organization is an action organization. It is not consumed by the narcissism of the small difference. As a matter of fact, our speakers all have substantial disagreements with each other on many other things, but have concluded that stopping the world going up in nuclear smoke is much more important than any political differences we might have with each other. There's no in-crowd at no to NATO, no to war. There's no permanent roster of speakers. People are not shadow banned and deleted from history, airbrushed. There's no litmus test. And above all, we are bringing interesting new voices onto the battlefield in a way that is capturing people's uh, attention and exciting them about the possibility of rebuilding a mass anti-war movement in the world and perhaps particularly in the English-speaking world, which is, I'm afraid to say, where most of the problems of the world are originating. Civil war is raging as I speak. Buildings are on fire. Cars are on fire. Protesters carrying guns and even grenades are on the streets. 40,000 armed police officers have been deployed to baton, to gas, to water cannon, to smoke, and even to shoot unarmed protesters. I refer, of course, not to Russia, but to France. The war is coming home. The proximate reason for the dramatic events unfolding again this evening in France are the gunning down of a 17-year-old boy, an unarmed boy, illicitly, allegedly, driving a motor car in the French city of Nanterre. But of course, that's only the proximate reason. French people have been moving in their millions, sometimes with yellow vests on, sometimes without sometimes about pension reform, sometimes about France's role in the world as a leading belligerent in the now existential struggle between the NATO powers and the adversaries NATO has chosen to confront, namely Russia and China. Although they have others, if you want them. Venezuela may or may not come back onto the enemy roster. Iran has never been off it. Indeed, the scenes that we are witnessing in France this evening are the very scenes that France was encouraging in Iran just a year or so ago. Let's hope that the French President Macron does not suffer the grisly end that the Libyan leader, Colonel Gaddafi, suffered at the hands of, amongst others, France, France and the United Kingdom and the USA destroyed Libya, blew its bloody doors off 
to use a Michael Caine-ism. And now 500,000 African men are massing in Libya, desperately looking for a way across the Mediterranean into the European countries who call themselves the Garda and who seek to keep the jungle in Borrell's words at bay, but who, having destroyed Libya as a functioning state, have unwittingly, perhaps, opened the doors to that new invasion. All around the southern Mediterranean, countries like Italy, like Spain, and like France are in serious trouble with their economies and with the dysfunctionality of their society. And yet, most of their time they spend obsessing about events in countries far distant from them. Borrell, the European Union's foreign minister, called on all of the EU's navies to sail their ships, not in the Mediterranean, not in the English Channel, not to defend their own coasts, their own lands, but in the Taiwan Straits and in the South China Sea. That, said Borrell, is freedom's frontier. So now we know the European Union satrapies are fully signed up, with one or two exceptions, to the permanent war which has been declared in Washington. In Washington, we now discover that the leader of what they used to laughingly call the free world sleeps in an iron lung. That's right. He sleeps in a machine to enable him to breathe, but not, alas, to think, not, alas, to read an autocue, not, alas, to find his way safely off a stage, not, alas, to stop him falling over repeatedly on public platforms, on stairs to aircraft and elsewhere. What a state we are in. Some people don't believe in karma. Some people don't believe in any kind of divine justice or retribution. I find it hard to avoid the conclusion that those who set to set the world on fire, who set out to subjugate, to dominate, and to exploit the others are now amongst the most dysfunctional societies on the planet. And those that they targeted are compared to them, at least, a model of functionality and economically speaking, are outperforming them exponentially. Somebody said the other day when I put up a video that got a million views in less than 48 hours, where are the poor Russians in that video? The perception in Europe that somehow Russia is a poor country is an enduring one. But this year, this year for the first time, Russian, the average Russian, was better off than the average European. This in the teeth of a level of economic warfare being carried out against Russia by the Western countries who constitute just 13% of the world's population has never been more ferocious. They said that they would crush the Russian currency, the ruble, 
In fact, they crushed their own currencies. Or at least we crushed the pound and the euro. The dollar is not yet crushed, but it exists in its current form and at its current value only because it is used as a reserve currency and the currency for the transaction of oil trades, both of which are now under grave and growing threat. The list of countries seeking to join the BRICS, which was originally Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, is now so large that it tests the very English alphabet to properly describe it. A new acronym from A to Z will very soon be required. Countries that were for decades, not just satrapies of the United States and other Western countries, have now thrown off the shackles of colonialism, not just run their own flag up in place of the British or the American flag. No, they have literally thrown off the shackles. Countries in Africa, like Niger, like Mali, have ordered France to leave their country and begun arresting armed Frenchmen found on their soil. Countries like Saudi Arabia, long a byword for a satrapy, have begun to cold shoulder the United States and trade with the enemies of the United States in their own currency and seek to join the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. The world is changing fast. The tectonic plates can audibly be heard moving. And the leaders of the Western countries have never been less well-placed to meet the challenge. It didn't have to be like this. We could have all warmed under the rising sun in the east of the globe. We could have all traded with each other, invested in each other, cooperated with each other. We could have all been warm. Instead, our leaders have chosen the path of confrontation and war. The war for the moment is in the Ukraine and being conducted over the dead bodies of the Ukrainian people. Now, some 300,000 or more dead. One in three people in Ukraine knows well someone who has died in this conflict, a doubling of the proportion in just three months since the last survey was taken. And the average number of people that have died in the conflict that the respondents to the survey knew was three. And most of those casualties are coming from the west of Ukraine. Something like 65% of the casualties are coming from the bastions of Ukrainian nationalism. And in the Second World War, during the Holocaust, the bastions of Bandera and the other Nazi collaborators who fell upon their own Jewish population and Polish population like wolves, like savage beasts, even before the SS has got there. It couldn't be clearer, I think. This week, there was an attack on Kramatorsk. It was originally spun 
on the BBC and Sky News and elsewhere as an attack on a peaceful restaurant. A peaceful restaurant, it turned out, that contained two generals of the Ukrainian armed forces, 15 other senior officers, 50, 50 foreign advisors and mercenaries, and an untold number of other secret services operators from Western countries, from NATO countries. It was a stunning military success, which unfortunately also killed the young women that had been gathered there as society hostesses for the dinner of the top brass of the Ukrainian military and their NATO allies. The war is going very badly, as anyone with access to any alternative media, whether social media or via VPN, uh, Russian media, which has been banned in the name of freedom in the uh, vast majority of territories in the so-called Western world. Anyone can see that the spring counteroffensive, which became a summer counteroffensive, has fallen in the words of The Economist and The Wall Street Journal, woefully short of being described as a success. First it was the rains, then it was unexpectedly stiff Russian resistance, then it was mines, then it was the extraordinary fortifications which the Russian armed forces have built over these last few months. The attempted coup d'etat last weekend failed miserably and has now reached the levels of farce. But the Russian people showed in the teeth of that attempted coup d'etat that they are fully behind their country, fully behind their state, fully behind their president. I'm a supporter myself of Mr. Zhuganov, the leader of the political opposition to the Putin government in the Russian Duma. He stepped up to the mark without hesitation and gave his unequivocal support to the president and to the republic and to the armed forces of the Russian Federation. All efforts to destabilize and divide and eventually dismember Russia are doomed to fail as any perspicacious observer already knows. They depend on a lack of perspicacity on the part of the mass of the people. And that's where we come in. We, all of us, have our own platforms. We are all able to reach people. We have to make available the alternative point of view, the different perspective, even just so that people can say they heard both sides of the argument. But I'm confident that when they hear our side of the argument, that they will side with us. And all the signs are that that is so. As censorship is increased, it is a sign not of strength, but of weakness of the war party. We're the anti-war party. And moreover, we believe that war will always be with us as long as NATO holds the Europeans, the North Americans, 
and the Australasians and the Japanese in the grip of their hand. We have to break that grip. And all of us are trying to do that with our own arguments in our own way. Even where we disagree on so many other things, we must come together. Or there may not be a world worth arguing over. There may not be a world for any of us to win. So as always, we have assembled an interesting platform uh, that I will now introduce. First of all is a man who has set fire to the internet. You may have seen him on my own shows. You may have watched him, I hope you have, on his own shows. He is never off the screen with a level of analysis, criticism, and an entertaining style that is second to none. For one so young, he's a big star. He's Richard Medhurst, and I call him in now. Richard, uh, where do you see things in the, in the wake of last weekend's events and the subsequent failures this week of the so-called counter-offensive? Hi, George. Thanks for the kind words. And um, that, was, that was a great opening speech. And uh, well, first of all, with when it comes to Prigozhin and this uh, so-called coup um, or mutiny or whatever people want to call it, um, I think uh, it was funny watching their um, uh, so-called analysis and on, on CNN and uh, you know other ma mainstream platforms because they um, they couldn't grasp, they couldn't understand that that um, Prigozhin and and Putin coming to a, a, a negotiated settlement or a peaceful resolution was a good thing, right? So they interpreted any form, form of de-escalation or diplomacy as weakness. Right, and I'm sure if if Putin had wiped out Prigozhin, uh, then they would have called him a butcher. So you can't really win with them. Um, and this idea that that Putin lacked the forces to to tackle Wagner, I mean, it, this is it's preposterous because uh, you know on the one hand they're saying that Putin has so uh, he has so many weapons and and uh, such an army that he's laying waste to Ukrainian cities, but he can't take on a twenty five thousand force. And th this is e if you believe that that um, they were actually going to go to war, uh, you know, with each other. Um, although, uh, uh, you know, Putin did speak about a helicopter being shot down. Um, you know, the the Ukrainian states about twelve Russian uh, uh, servicemen killed. But that's besides the point. Um, you know, and and when it comes to this counteroffensive, they've been hyping this up for ages. Uh, you know, and and trying to raise money. Uh, siphon off funds away from uh, countries, from you know, from that money being invested instead of being invested in in um, you know in in England or in the United States, uh, where they don't even have a healthcare system in the United States, nothing to speak of. Um, they gave all these billions to Ukraine, and then we saw what happened with the Bradleys, uh, which are the the American tanks and the the Leopards, the German tanks, a smoking column. Of twisted metal, that's the counteroffensive. And what did they expect? What did they expect? Um, the Russians have been dug in. The Russians are are a professional fighting force. They're not a joke, and they've been uh, constructing trenches, uh, tank ditches, tank traps, mines, and it's horrific. I mean, I, I think some of you might have seen the videos from captured by drones 
of of uh, you know men trying to get out of minefields. Uh, it, it's it's uh, something from a horror movie and beyond. So you know they they're they're basically taking all of this money that should be spent on healthcare, spent on 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 infrastructure, and giving it to the weapons companies. And they they like to frame it as aid to Ukraine, but the only ones that they're aiding are are their friends in the arms industry. So and, and then the Ukrainian men um, who have to go off and fight this war, this hopeless war, they're also the ones being sacrificed. They're the, they're the pawns that they're sending off. Another thing, uh, this uh, pizzeria or restaurant in Kramatorsk that was that was uh, that you mentioned that was attacked in the last forty eight hours, there were civilians in there, right? And I th and, and I think um, I I don't need to to uh, remind you um, of the troubles. But uh, during the troubles, you know, it was considered um, a valid target. You know, if you, you had British soldiers frequenting a bar or a pub or a disco, then that was fair game for the IRA and vice versa, right? So St. Patrick's Day bombing, for example, people killed just for being Catholic, just because they went to this bar. So, you know, I, the, the Ukrainian generals, uh, the foreign mercenaries who went to this pizzeria or restaurant in Kramatorsk, they know that the Russians are watching them. They know that they are inviting hell upon the, the civilians and the local population who are in this bar, who are in this restaurant. And, you know, if, if, the, if the situation uh, were reversed, the Ukrainians would have struck them too. And that, that, that is, um, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, that's just war and we should accept it. We shouldn't accept it. This should not be happening. They should not be putting civilians at risk. They know what's going to happen. They know the Russians are targeting them. And um, I also made the argument that the, the fact that they're foreign mercenaries is, is uh, kind of besides the point because uh, well, Richard has frozen turns into there. A target. Him, uh... It turns into a target for the Russians. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, you know Scott Richer made this point. Um, uh, he's a former intelligence officer in the Marine Corps. He made the point that if if uh, if two Ukrainian officers are speaking to each other and there's a light bulb. Uh, you know, um, lighting up the room, then that energy grid becomes a target. Now, I don't necessarily agree with with um, you know most of uh, the rules of engagement that that our armies have, but um, I just wanted to highlight the danger that they're exposing civilians to uh, in in the case of Kramatorsk, and then the Kiev shopping centers, another uh, incident um, or, or example from from last year where. They were parking tanks under the shopping center. And then, of course, there's no media. There's no critical thinking. You know, that they have no brains um, in the media. So they, they don't bother asking questions. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, they just um, use these tragedies to continue this barrage of, of nonsense that, you know, Russia, uh, Russia uh, uh, just likes to kill civilians for the sake of killing civilians because they're evil. And uh, it's such it's such a, 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 a glaring contradiction because on the one hand they tell us the Russians are incompetent, the Russians don't have any money for weapons, they've run out of weapons, and then on the other hand they tell us that they have they have uh, three million dollar missiles like the Iskander missile lying around just to to, to waste on restaurants uh, in Kramatorsk. So this is once again a glaring contradiction, um, and and uh, you know. The lack of thinking, critical thinking in the media is stunning. Um, and uh, you know, George, you, you alluded to the um, 
the refugees that that uh, um, are in are in Libya. Um, I would also highlight that the other week you had 750 people who drowned. Um, uh, th there was there was a vessel in the Mediterranean, and, and the, the the Greek authorities did nothing. They knew what was happening uh, and did absolutely nothing. And I think this is, um, it, I mean, it's disgusting, right? Because uh, it, everybody knows wherever you are in the world, maritime law is that when you see somebody drowning, you see somebody in distress, you go and help them. Uh, whether you're a, a, a destroyer or a tiny yacht or or a canoe, you go and help them. Um, and so there's a there's such a lack of humanity, um, and the, you know it's it's astonishing that they spent more attention in the media and money uh, on this uh, Titanic uh, uh, submersible than than you know on helping uh, uh, people who are drowning, civilians who are drowning. And I um, you know of course I think all all countries who've taken refugees should be uh, you know they should be thanked. Um, you know, Germany took in a lot of refugees, Canada and so on. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they are benefiting. They're benefiting from a new workforce, um, from uh, uh, young, young people, from people with diplomas, uh, pe people who are doctors, engineers, um, architects, or, or uh, e even uh, as they call it, non-skilled labor. I mean, there's still a new workforce for them. Um, and uh, I, I, um, I just find it, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> It's disgusting what happened to Gaddafi. You 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 alluded to what happened to Gaddafi, and and I think you know we should always remember that these issues, whether it's refugees that are drowning in the Mediterranean, or whether we are talking about uh, the the tragedy that has befallen Ukraine, or whether we are talking about North Africa or Syria, all of these things are linked, and we we come back to NATO at the end of the day. We come back to this war machine. Um, anyone who says that we need NATO to defend Europe, I'm sorry, but this is an obsolete war machine. And, uh, you know, when we were in London during the last event, I said, if, if we were in the 1960s, you know, we could have a different conversation, but we're not in the 1960s. Um, uh, and, you know, NATO has no purpose since 1991. There is no Soviet Union. Soviet Union is, um, you know, it's completely gone. The Warsaw Pact has been dismantled. Uh, and so, you know, the West should also understand that it has a duty as it as it um, uh, conveyed to the Russian diplomats to also step down and dismantle uh, the war machine. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened. Yugoslavia was the first to really face the, the horrors of NATO and then Libya and Syria. And now Ukraine is another victim of NATO. And this is because they want they want to make money. Uh, Zelensky said the other day that he's banning uh, or suspending elections. Now, to you know, to his credit, or shall we say, just to give him the benefit of the doubt, yes, the Ukrainian constitution does mandate, uh, or does stipulate rather that that during a time of martial law, you cannot have elections. Fine, but he is the one who renews the martial law, so he could decide on August 18th when it expires because it, it it has a 90 day period. Um, uh, he could he could decide not to renew it and have elections. Uh, Syria had elections, and Syria is in a far worse state. Two than had two elections. Exactly right. So, uh, what's his, what's his excuse? If if he's so confident of uh, his mandate, then there should be no problem. Uh, obviously, again, to give him the the benefit of the doubt, I understand it's not an ideal situation. But why is he banning Russian books? This is just last week. Russian books and Belarusian books. Uh, why did he ban all the other parties? I, I think it might be hard to have elections when you've banned all the other parties. Yes. Um, and and then banning religious groups linked to Russia. 
So is this the democratic champion that NATO and the EU have put forward? Uh, if yes, I think uh, uh, we're in a very sorry state. Well, sadly, it is uh, indeed a sorry state. Richard Medhurst, thanks. Uh, we'll hear from you again later. Let me uh, introduce Anastasia Battle, who is the editor-in-chief of Leonora magazine of the Schiller Institute and organizer of the International uh, Peace Coalition. Anastasia is, I think, in the United States. Welcome, uh, Anastasia. Joe Biden said that you would not be sending American troops to Ukraine, but there sure seem to be rather a few American troops in Kramatorsk, judging by their tattoos and the insignia that they were wearing. What's going on? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the United States, the British, NATO, all these countries are trying to get a nuclear war going by any means necessary. And I really want to situate this, this crisis and what's happening in that this is not coming from a position of strength. What you're seeing with, with the United States, what you're seeing with you know, Boris Johnson sabotaging peace between Russia and Ukraine, all these different things, this is coming because you have a collapsing empire, right? This old financial system, these, all these old families, their system is hopelessly bankrupt. There's somewhere around $2 quadrillion in debt just on the books of these banks and derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, all these different things. And just actually similar to what you were talking about, what you've seen is an emerging system on the planet which is threatening that system. It's threatening this old empire, right? What you see with the BRICS, what you see with China, what you see with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? What you're seeing is a new formation of humanity where people are coming together to sit at the table for development as opposed to war, right? And that is the biggest threat to empire. How are they supposed to control nations if they can't keep a stranglehold on you with, with bank loans? How can they, you know, keep keep you uh, under control if they can't, you know, force you to give up your currency or your right to currency? And I think that this is a really important point to emphasize because a lot of times when these, you know, psyop operations happen, it gets really confusing, and everybody starts talking all sorts of of uh, nonsense. You know, they're, they're talking to various gossip circles. I agree with Scott Ritter. I think that, you know, I think Scott Ritter has the best. Um, view on this this standpoint and what happened. And where we go from here in terms of pulling together every single peace organization on this planet, because at the rate that we're going and at the rate that the United States is talking, uh, in particular, this, this resolution that says that if uh, the uh, nuclear power plant uh, is, is bombed, then we would immediately enact the NATO Charter Charter Five uh, Article Five resolution, right? You're looking at nuclear war down the barrel at this point. This is not avoidable any longer. And whatever people's differences are or problems, I'll just say this: if you're not being attacked and slandered and smeared all across the board, then there's something you're not doing anything. You're not accomplishing anything at this point. 
So I think we need to really relish in the fact that this empire is collapsing and have a huge uh, uh, representation of the population of the world. Most people do not want nuclear war, right? You talk to regular people on the street, nobody says, oh yes, I'd like to die in a nuclear holocaust. That would be lovely. Nobody says that. What you're, what we need to do is break people out of this mentality where they've been really, it's, it's been like years of brainwashing and smashing uh, their, their identities, really making them peasants. You see this problem in the United States too. Americans hate it when you call them peasants, but that's how they've been acting. That, oh, I can't do anything. I'm not in power. I have no power. I can't. It's like, no, that's not what power is. Power does not come from might makes right. Real power comes from the ability to inspire another person to think and to act. So on August 6, uh, which we've been in discussion with, with you guys, I'm very happy to be working with you. This is really wonderful. No to NATO, no to war um, in the UK. But we also have many groups from all over the world in Germany, in France, in Italy, who are now coming together. We're going to have a big show of, of the population against nuclear war, big demonstrations all over the world, August 6, which is the uh, anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. And this is the most appropriate time for us to come out and make a stand. And people should be doing other things like I've been doing, like Jose Vega's been doing, we've been doing interventions, right? Nonviolent direct action. These have to be nonviolent. If you can't be nonviolent, then don't do it. You're not actually representing something which is going to be productive. We have to be nonviolent. We have to create the government and the world that we want to see. What do we want to create? We can't just be upset at everything and blow it all to pieces. We need to create something better. And that's what my, my good friend of mine uh, and the head of our organization, Helga Zepp-LaRouche, that's what we've been organizing for for well over a year now called the... Um, creating a, a new uh, a system of security and development on, in the world, creating a new system which incorporates all nations, where everybody can actually have this dialogue, because it's not even just, you know, between Russia and the United States or Russia or whatever, Russia and NATO, there are the whole global South. I mean, this is the majority of the world's population. Why aren't people from there being heard? They're not. So that's what we're doing with this group, the International Peace Coalition. And I really encourage, you know, uh, Richard, George, you know, join us tomorrow on the meeting. We're going to be working out some of these details and, and getting more ideas around uh, to, to really make this happen. We have to work together and we need to get as many people as we can involved in this process. Anastasia, thank you for that. You're well named Anastasia Battle. Thank you. Battle against... <laughs> The war mongers much uh, appreciated now in the hope that patrick henningson has arrived uh, let me introduce him he was one of the speakers in the last meeting he was so popular his uh, contribution went so well uh, unusually we brought him back for a reprise just as early as the very next meeting he is of 21st century war many of you have seen and heard him He's an outstanding analyst, commentator, radio and television presenter, and an all-round first-class man. Patrick has joined us. 
Patrick, uh, let me ask you what uh, I asked uh, Anastasia. Uh, to what extent are the Americans now involved in this war in Ukraine? And to what extent do the American people know that? Yeah, we've been told that uh, we're not directly at war with Russia. Uh, and we're only providing assistance. I've been told this for the last 18 months. But the truth is, George, uh, our assistance, so to speak, um, has been going on for years, uh, the better part of a decade, uh, actually. Um, so the, the, the building up of a proxy uh, army for NATO, that Ukraine is a NATO member state in everything but name. Uh, the, we, this is NATO equipped to NATO standard. Uh, with NATO instructions, uh, military support, NATO reconnaissance, uh, NATO technical support, all the different instructors, some of which were at the uh, uh, unfortunate uh, location of the arrival of the Iskander missile at the pizzeria in uh, Krematorsk. But this is, this is one of the problems with uh, the uh, arming of Ukraine by the West, is that uh, although we're dumping all of our equipment and all of our military gear in there. Um, those require Western uh, instructors and technical teams. Otherwise, um, they're, they're more or less useless. That goes for the tank groups. That goes for any jets that are parked in Ukraine or parked in Poland, uh, whatever. Um, these are going to be, there's going to require large, a large uh, attachment of uh, Western military personnel, engineers, and specialists. So, and you, if, as soon as they're not there, then you know, the tanks don't roll. In fact, this is what happened in Iraq. Uh, the Abrams tank uh, division, which was uh, gifted to the Iraqi government, um, had to be uh, maintained by a U.S. Uh, group, a technical team. And that technical support was withdrawn only weeks before the emergence of ISIS in Mosul. Uh, that was a fact told to me by... Uh, Abu Mahdi uh, Mohendes, uh, who unfortunately died uh, alongside uh, Qasem Soleimani, General Soleimani, in the uh, double assassination uh, at the hands of the United States and Israel. So uh, that's a little known fact, but that goes to show you that all of this gear is useless uh, without a large number of uh, military instructors and specialists. But so that said, we are at war with Russia um, using Ukraine as the third party pitch for this war. So there should be no question about that. We're so invested uh, in the West politically, whole political careers, governments have wagered everything on this war, that, it, that it's going to be, that Ukraine is going to be victorious uh, in the end. Uh, all political capital, real capital in terms of money, finance, the reputation of NATO uh, is also on the line. Uh, don't be fooled by NATO saying NATO has never been so united. We've never had so much solidarity in Europe and NATO. When you hear Ursula von der Leyen or Jan Stoltenberg saying this, um, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, there is, there is, is they're in danger of fracturing permanently um, because the reckoning of this failed proxy war will damage NATO's reputation forever. So they, they realize their credibility, their their existence is hanging by a thread, and it's really hanging by a whole series of propaganda threads or uh, propaganda yarns to be a, a little more apt. So this this has been the problem, uh, and Vilnius is coming up. 
the 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 NATO summit in Vilnius in Lithuania is coming up in just a couple of weeks, and uh, I would expect that some big announcements w would be due because they have to make a big announcements about doing something or some incident that would coincide with the NATO summit um, would also provide that impetus, that that uh, pretext for continued support for this increasingly unpopular proxy war. So what could that possibly be? And it was interesting that uh, in the run-up to the coup that wasn't a coup over the weekend, an extraordinary drama that played out, uh, an intra-military uh, mutiny, if you will, in Russia, in the run-up to this, the 72 hours before this, was just uh, nonstop propaganda and building up this idea that Russia was going to attack itself for the third time, uh, but this time at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And so Russia was going to attack itself again, and then this would be an international incident, and it's a fait accompli. It's just everyone speaking, whether it was Zelensky tweeting, whether it was Senator Richard Blumenthal and Lindsey Graham uh, uh, screaming about it from the uh, pulpit uh, at the uh, press room at the U.S. Senate, or whether it was uh, the government in Kiev or one of the ministers warning about it or the press. Where did this idea come from? So clearly, NATO is planning something. They're building up to some sort of a crescendo on this issue of uh, a nuclear incident. Okay, And so lo and behold, the coup that wasn't a coup unfolds over the weekend, and it really sucked the oxygen right out of this uh, buildup they had for this incident, that which clearly is being telegraphed regarding uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So r what could Russia possibly gain uh, from attacking itself uh, in, a, in an area in a power station that it, it, it controls? Another critical piece of infrastructure, like the Nord Stream pipeline, for instance, or like the Karkovka Dam. Uh, is an example, another example. So yet another uh, potential opportunity, which if you think about it, George, the there's very the, there are very few entry points for 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 NATO or the European Union or what, under whatever aegis, uh, peacekeeping forces would be inserted into this situation. There are very few viable entry points. Um, to, so in order to galvanize international support, if it was, for instance, as they're building this up, a potential Chernobyl-like incident that would affect, quote, we, this would affect Europeans, etc. So downwind from the uh, nuclear incident. So they're building up the Chernobyl narrative and that Russia is irresponsible and that they're going to do this reckless act of nuclear terrorism. Okay, a dirty bomb, who knows what form this mythical or this uh, false flag uh, would would take okay then that would uh open the door for uh, calls globally for and it would be hard even for countries like china and other countries to resist if this was painted as a legitimate uh nuclear incident it would be hard to resist calls for an international neutral uh so-called neutral peacekeeping force uh under the guise of the european union for instance um not necessarily nato and so this, the, they, they nearly had the same identical situation, if you remember, in July of 2014. Um, and the fighting was particularly intense in the Donbass. And then a, an airliner, a passenger airliner, MH17, was shot down um, right in the middle of some of the most intense 
uh, fighting front lines there. And there were immediately calls for an international, uh, some sort of a body or groups, OACD, accompanied by p maybe peacekeepers, to secure the uh, damage of where the plane went down. So in my mind, this is still an unsolved mystery, although the Dutch Safety Board um, thinks otherwise. So there's a similar situation there, the same situation, George, in Syria, um, in, in multiple occasions um, where uh, Syrian government uh, and their combined forces were making progress, and lo and behold, a chemical weapons attack was staged. And so that provided the pretext for uh, the West to fire cruise missiles uh, to attack Syria. And this happened time and time again. This looks like one of those types of provocations. This to somehow turn the tide or to somehow create an impasse uh, in the fighting because Russia's doing uh, arguably much better than Ukraine and NATO are doing on the battlefield. So they don't have a natural entry point. So otherwise, the latest statements are that they'll have to wait till October. And if if Ukraine is not successful by October for military means, then uh, we need to put a, you know, a combined Polish or Baltic force, a peacekeeping force uh, in Western Ukraine, for instance. So, so there, there's no military path to victory for Ukraine. There are no negotiations for any ceasefires. Uh, or any peace negotiations right now. So they've completely precluded um, anything that would uh, stop the, the conflict. And so if we're fighting for democracy in the West, which we're told this is what it's all about, we're told this is about democracy. We're fighting for democracy. And if, if we don't, if, if Ukraine doesn't make this stand um, and we don't help them make this stand, then Putin's going to overrun Europe and you know fly the Russian flag off the Eiffel Tower in Paris. That's the picture that's being painted um, by the West. That's the narrative. And Zelensky's invoking the, demo the democracy domino theory. If they don't protect democracy in Ukraine, then uh, from the evil Russians and authoritarianism will rule, will rule the day and take over Europe and the West. So there's no elections. Uh, those are suspended indefinitely in Ukraine until the war is over. Again, when, was the, when will the war be over? Apparently ne never. Uh, or until Ukraine loses. Um, there's no military path for victory. There are no negotiations. The whole, All the media outlets in Ukraine have been taken over by the state. Anybody who doesn't comply is being jailed, or journalists have been disappeared. Not just Gonzalo Lira, which we, you've spoken about, George, and which is a really concerning uh, incident, but many other Ukrainian journalists, from the moment the fighting began, were disappeared from Odessa, from Kharkiv, from other parts of the country, and they're not talked about, and there are many of them, uh, and also closing churches that are suspected of being sympathetic to Russia, for instance, uh, forced conscription, press ganging, anybody between the age of 18 to 60. So where's the democracy in Ukraine? There doesn't, it seems to be the, the least democratic uh, society and country in the world right now. There are single party dictatorial states that have more plurality of opinion uh, in society than Ukraine does right now. So well, they've even uh, they've even changed Christmas, uh, which uh, takes some doing to uh, persuade an orthodox country to move their Christmas to the Western Christmas 25th of December. But then the orthodox community was never asked. This was a dictatorial fiat by by Zelensky. As you described it, Patrick, it, uh, it struck me more and more that we may be facing, and very soon, 
a kind of 9-11 moment with this uh, nuclear plant. Am I right? Well, yeah. And something I want to mention, George, uh, which didn't get any press coverage because of the coup that wasn't a coup over the weekend. Russia, uh, the FSB arrested five individuals that were um, uh, had were smuggling casium-137, which is a radioactive material, to a Ukrainian national to be used in a dirty bomb, three paying $3.5 million. I don't know whether this was a sting, but this was run. You can even read about it in Reuters. Did, you, did anybody see this in any other? Did, did, this should have been on the headline BBC News, CNN, all of, the, all of them. It, it got zero coverage. So what does that tell you? There are a lot of things going on. Um, that uh, are not getting attention in the Western media. So I think possibly Russia may have foiled uh, a potential plot there or exposed saboteurs or conspirators there through that. But, um, the, but the propaganda has, has resumed on this, George, this Zaporizhia talking point uh, in the last couple of days, and, and they're really ramping it up now. I told you he was an expert, didn't I? Let me go back to uh, the first speaker, uh, Richard Medhurst uh, is half Syrian. Uh, whatever uh, Russia has on its plate in Ukraine, it hasn't stopped them from assisting the Syrian people and their government in, in rooting out the last bastions of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Idlib. Tell us uh, what's been happening over the last few days there, if you will. Right. So the Russians, are, they're, they're still conducting strikes. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, the Idlib is really this um, um, this uh, Al-Qaeda stronghold. Uh, and it, it's, it's funny because every time the Americans claim to have killed um, an ISIS leader, lo and behold, uh, where, where did this take place? In Idlib, right? So this is right on... It, it's basically on the, on the border with Turkey, right? So, I mean, the, the, or, or I should say Turkey has made it, um, uh, you know, they've annexed it, uh, all but annexed it. The people use Turkish currency there now. Um, and, you know, Turkey supports um, either directly or by turning a blind eye, they support uh, Al-Qaeda. So now they've rebranded. They call themselves um, HTS or Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. There are other groups like the... Um, so-called Syrian National Army. Just to be very clear, this is this is not the the Syrian the, the official armed forces of of, uh, of Syria, which are called the the Syrian Arab Army. The 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 SNA is a Turkish-backed um, uh, militia or rebel group. Um, but again, uh, calling them rebels is kind of funny because uh, you you don't even know where where um, most of these people come from. I mean, you've got five thousand Uyghurs. Um, in, in northern Syria, in this region, in Idlib. Uh, you've got, uh, as I mentioned, Turk, the Turkish um, uh, armed forces, the Turkish-backed groups. And so this, this uh, is a very precarious situation because Turkey is a NATO state, right? So um, we should keep that in mind that NATO is, is occupying, through Turkey, is occupying a large chunk of Syria. Then we have the United States, in, you know, west, um, east of the Euphrates River, Occupying all the the oil fields, occupying the the crops, the because this is this is known as the breadbasket region, and so they do that in partnership with the uh, Kurdish militias, and then of course you know when it comes to um, the Russians, um, if it weren't for Russia, uh, I think 
um, Al Qaeda would have almost certainly taken control of of Syria. I mean, they were really already in in the capital in in Jobar uh, and so on. And when the Russians came in, um, uh, I know Patrick mentioned Soleimani earlier. You know, there, there's this famous meeting that that um, Nasrallah spoke of that Soleimani went to uh, Moscow to meet with Putin, and he convinced him in two hours to go and help um, in Syria because they had, Syria had asked Russia multiple times and they always refused. Um, uh, you know, they, they didn't want to get mixed up in it, but uh, you know, he made them understand that, you know, this whole region is, is, is going, is going to collapse entirely um, if, if they don't help. And uh, it's be only, it's only because of Hezbollah, because of Iran and because of um, the Syrian army and the Russian army that uh, Syria is, uh, did not fall under the, the uh, you know, fall into the shadow of ISIS. Um, the thing is, though, that it's still carved up into four parts. You know, you've got Israel that have been occupying the Golan Heights since 67. As I mentioned, now you've got Turkey in the north, America to the east, the United States to the east. And Russia is the only one that seems to be interested in fighting um, Al-Qaeda and fighting these uh, uh, extremists, these, these um, foreign extremists or foreign-backed extremists, uh, take your pick, that have come into Syria through Turkey, may I add, right? So um, as, as uh, we're seeing this uh, a coup that is not a coup, as, as Patrick said, um, yeah, Russia is still helping out. And there's been a question about what, what will become of Wagner because um, uh, you have um, Wagner in Africa, in some countries, you know, deployed to, to a, um, uh, in a limited fashion, in uh, uh, Mali, um, then in Sudan, uh, then in uh, Central African Republic, and and also um, uh, allegedly a few of them are also in Syria. So now the question is, what becomes of them? But with Syria, it's a different um, uh, uh, matter because we're really talking about the Russian armed forces, not just um, about um, not just about Wagner. Wagner do not play any um, a large role uh, in in Syria. Just to make that clear, it's really the Russian armed forces, and I think it's. It says a lot that uh, the, the Russians are, are, are being attacked by 50 nations, um, the, the majority of them NATO, and, and still commits resources to Syria. The Russians actually have a base in Syria, um, a, a naval base on the Mediterranean. Um, and despite the obvious strategic value of that, it's funny because that base was in tatters. Um, it was falling apart until the Russians came to help um, uh, along with Hezbollah and Iran. And, and now uh, uh, they've upgraded that base uh, in the last years. It's state of the art um, and has all types, um, uh, you know, all, 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 types, all, all um, sizes and shapes of, of Russian ships. And the funny thing is you'll hear uh, um, people complain about, uh, oh, the Iranian presence in Syria or the Russian, the growing Russian influence in Syria. I mean, you you you've no one to blame but yourselves, right? NATO, because if they hadn't gone through with this regime change project in Syria and hadn't destabilized Iraq next door, none of this would have happened. If you're so concerned about Russia being in Syria or or Iran being in Syria, although again, I would leave that concern up to to, to Syrians and not a bunch of Western think tanks um, who 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 don't know their um, you know their bum from their elbow. Uh, so yeah, R Russia is still helping with that, but it's the front line. I mean, it, the lines haven't changed for, since 2019, you could say, right? So it's it's a static situation, and it's done. It's like that on purpose because as much as Russia um, helps militarily, 
the sanctions are really killing people. Um, and that was engineered on purpose by Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump that, you know, they, they understood militarily they cannot win. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's a, a lost cause. But they, they decided to, to pursue a scorched earth policy, as I call it. And so um, they're, they're just starving people out in Syria with these Caesar Act sanctions, which are extremely brutal. Um, but the thing is that the world is changing. Um, you know, uh, I think Anna mentioned earlier uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, uh, BRICS, you know, all, all of these uh, institutions and systems that are, are, are now uh, building an alternative world to what we currently have, an alternative system. Syria has made very clear, and this was the Syrian uh, f um, foreign minister, um, or excuse me, he's a... a the deputy foreign minister and the minister of, uh, of finance, they were uh, talking um, uh, about Syria making a formal application to BRICS or BRICS plus, as we should call it now, and also um, uh, to join uh, the SCO um, and uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, already last year, I think, uh, or rather two years ago, uh, Syria applied for that. So all of a sudden, Turkey now want to be friends, right? I, I would also mention that, given it's a NATO uh, army and the, la the largest NATO or second largest NATO army, I think, after... after um, no, no, it's the largest. Yeah, it's the largest one. So in, in any case, uh, the, the, the point still stands that Erdogan wants to um, be friends now with Assad after trying to kill him for, for, for 10 years. Um, but uh, I, I think that's only because he's realized that um, the pressure... Um, uh, you know that he's he's realized it's a lost cause, and also this pressure on him uh, uh, from Iran and from from Russia, right? So I I would uh, uh, I would like to highlight that point that uh, they're they're really putting pressure on him to make amends with Syria because after all they're, they're neighbors, um, and uh, they they want to 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 have Turkey pull out. Once once Turkey pulls out, um, then, you know, uh, that that's already a, a, a problem halved. But, uh, uh, you know, no, not one inch of, of Syrian land is going to be um, ceded to Turkey. And, and uh, I think uh, they need to understand that, um, you know, they're not going to get away with murder and then on top of it, take away land. Because af after the um, First World War and, uh, you know, Lawrence had led the Arab revolt, um, you know, Arabs were stabbed in the back by, by the Balfour uh, Declaration and the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So uh, you had a lot of Syrian land that was handed away to, to Turkey, a lot of Armenian land, by the way, that was also handed to Turkey. Um, and uh, I, I often ask myself, why do, why do African countries and, and, and a lot of Asian countries and Middle Eastern countries still keep these borders? It's a wonder to me. Um, they, 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 should, they should go back and redraw their own borders, not not keep Western borders. But um, it's uh, I think it's it's a matter of time before they they leave because um, you know they cannot sustain this occupation. And when I say they, I mean both the United States and Turkey. It's not in their interests. I think Turkey have understood that they they um, you know they they're not they don't want to um, miss out on on bricks. They don't want to miss out on Belt and Road. Um, and so it's in their best interests to simply pull out of Syria and uh, give back the land. Richard Matos, thank you so very much uh, for participating in this excellent meeting tonight. Anastasia, uh, talking of uh, people uh, changing, uh, whether they've genuinely changed or 
uh, not <laughs> in a way doesn't matter. Uh, Donald Trump, the assassin of General Soleimani and his comrade Mohandes, uh, is now the leader of the American anti-war movement, uh, which is quite a metamorphosis. And, of course, we've got a candidate running for the Democratic nomination, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who has been, if anything, even more stark in his positions about not just the war in Ukraine, but the United States' uh, role in all kinds of conflicts and conflict zones. Uh, do you take heart from that, that two people who are serious contenders uh, to be the next president, Trump uh, obviously more serious than Kennedy, but were Kennedy to get the Democratic nomination, my goodness, uh, we'd all be emigrating to the US to, uh, to live under his presidency, or I would anyway. Uh, do you take heart from the fact that two out of the three uh, probable next presidents are, are strongly anti-war? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on this, actually. Um, one, if RFK Jr. and Trump were to become the two candidates in the United States, I think we could finally have an honest election in this country and a serious debate. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with anything that either candidate has, you know, all of their, I mean, that's the problem with party politics, right? Is that people get all chunked up on this issue or that issue, but we have to view this as a dynamic process, right? There's a whole organizing process that's taking shape. That's not even just in the United States, right? This is what we were talking about with the global South, the BRICS, you know, you have countries that are saying, hey, let's not blow each other up into a nuclear holocaust. How about we collaborate to develop with one another instead, right? That's a much better option than nuclear war. And people are hearing that, right? That's what happened with Saudi Arabia, right? This is what I think could happen with, um, uh, with other nations in Southwest Asia. I think that that's, that's what China is working on right now. I mean, you, you get that whole region to be stable then there's no more of this, you know, these these geopolitical games going on. I mean, this is the the um, what would you call it? Like the keystone of the world, right? It's right in between all the all three different continents. So you keep this area in a destabilized fashion, then you can control the world. But if you have peace, if you have peaceful collaboration amongst all these countries who may not even like each other, they really don't have to. But the point is that you want to see a better future for your children. You want to see a better future for your people. And so I think what's happening in the United States, it's part of a global process. And I think that what we're doing with this International Peace Coalition is going to play a huge role in that, right? Getting RFK, you know, to talk about his, um, his uncle's peace speech, right, at the American University. That's huge. That's what Americans need to hear. We used to be a nation that was anti-imperial. You wouldn't know that if you're 30 years old or younger, but we used to be. And I think that that's really what we have to inspire inside of uh, what I'm working on and inspiring in, in my people in the United States, what I'm working on inspiring in other people. And I, I really want to, um, I was thinking about like what we can do 
in Britain. Uh, I was plotting in my <laughs> my mind <laughs> how we can evoke that kind of inspiration there because I've heard from many organizers that they're frustrated. You know, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to, um, you know, get this, this, this in motion? I think in every country, there's this strand of anti-imperialism and you can find it throughout your history. And I think a big part of that is this Shakespearean strand, right? Or, or Percy B. Shelley, right? You have this strand of people who say that humanity is intrinsically good and we reject this outlook of oligarchism. We reject this outlook of imperialism and we wanna fight for that. And whatever form that can look like, it'll look different in different countries, I think, because of our history and languages, but we should respect that. But I think in every country, you're gonna have that strand and I'd like to work with you guys in figuring out how to activate that. Um, which I, there's a video that um, I just gave into uh, our tech team here of the intervention that I did on Barack Obama, which however you want to feel about Obama, I don't know, but he uh, <laughs> he is the one that financed the overthrow of Ukraine in 2014. We sent Victoria Newland, who, my God. <laughs> I don't know where we find these women. I mean, it makes me ashamed, you know, to call her a woman, to have these beast women running around uh, threatening the world in a nuclear holocaust like this. Um, but I, I would like to play that. Uh, folks can bring that up. You overthrew Ukraine in 2014! You overthrew the legitimate Ukraine in 2014! Tell us about your plan! Mr. President, there's yes. more people. There's more so people that are. Service. There's more people that are going to get hurt if we go into nuclear no. war. Right now, we're on the verge of nuclear war. Thanks to, thanks to what you did in Ukraine in 2014. Why don't you tell the truth about what you did to overthrow Ukraine in 2014? Yeah, but we're on the right verge now, of nuclear war. Do you, you care about the lives of your supporters? Will you tell the truth before the world walks into world war? The coup of 2014 is on your doorstep. You were the one they allowed to
Well, uh, that was spirited. That's what's called doing battle. Anastasia Battle, thank you very much indeed for your part in this meeting this evening. Last word to the Oracle, uh, Patrick Henningsen. Let me ask Patrick if I may the, the question I asked Anastasia. It, it is remarkable to me, maybe not to you, there are three possible presidents. So the most likely, I've just been looking at the betting, the, the bookies uh, odds in a, an earlier broadcast I did with a, with a political betting guy. Uh, and the, the three most likely are Joe Biden, uh, RFK Jr., and Donald Trump. And two of those three are competing with each other as to which can be the more anti-war. That's a bit of a triumph, isn't it? An unexpected one. Sure. Yeah, it is encouraging. It is encouraging. Uh, out of fourth in there, uh, if Joe Biden produces a sick note uh, before the December, it, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, would be potentially slotted in there uh, one way or another. Um, so that's the number four. And he would be definitely pro-war uh, alongside Joe Biden. I like the competition of ideas between RFK uh, and and Donald Trump. I think uh, it's very encouraging that uh, Trump, for all his faults, uh, jumped out very quickly and said really the perfect thing that could be said, which was we need to stop the killing. You notice how the media, George, it's interesting with the gotcha questions. You know, they'll put they'll put they'll do this to every candidate. They'll put them on the spot. They'll say, you know, who do you do you want who do you want to win? Yeah, Russia or Ukraine? And Donald Trump completely sidestepped that very skillfully and said. He's all, I don't care who wins. He's all, I want the killing to stop. I want the dying to stop, which is the correct position. And there is a huge anti-war vein which runs through the American electorate. It runs through American society. Demographically, a uh, very strong anti-war vein runs through uh, the Great Lakes region, for instance. So Wisconsin, um, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, and then jump to uh, Washington State. And these would be uh, Scandinavian Americans uh, traditionally that will vote. Uh, that, that's a very strong anti-war block. Also uh, Quakers or people who descended from Quakers as well uh, in places like uh, Pennsylvania, Upper State New York. So it's, it's well known that this is a very strong voting block in America, so much so that uh, successive U.S. presidents have always campaigned and successfully uh, for no nation building, George Bush Jr., or uh, we're going to bring the troops home from Iraq on day one of my presidency, said Barack Obama, uh, and Donald Trump as well campaigned on an anti-war ticket. Out of those three presidents, only one of them uh, made good on those promises to not start any new wars, uh, and that was Donald Trump. He tried to bring the troops home from Syria, got gang-tackled by everybody uh, in the Senate and the Congress and the media uh, and the deep state uh, that made sure that that didn't happen. Uh, uh, not everything Donald Trump did was was uh, positive in, in that regard during his presidency, certainly um, made some egregious moves against Iran. And you mentioned uh, Soleimani and Mohandas, very regrettable incident, in my opinion, for the United States and for the region and the world. But that said, this, this is what Americans want. This is what they vote for. They The president who campaigns for uh, anti-war uh, themes has a mandate 
has a real mandate. And I will posit that uh, a Trump presidency in a second term uh, will have very, very good chance of making good on that, that anti-war mandate, m more so than he would in the first term when he had the whole system against him, multiple impeachments, et cetera, Mueller probe, all of the rest of it. So I, I, I'm very positive about that possibility for the Democrats and Joe Biden, uh, you, more of the same. Uh, in fact, maybe even worse. Who knows? So there is a stark difference there. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., his comments are hugely welcome. And, and what I love about RFK Jr. is he's brought that sanity back into the Democratic Party. It's okay to be a Democrat and be anti-war because of RFK. There's, there's a silent majority out there that he is speaking to. That, and the, these are in, including working class Democrats as well. So maybe he, he might even steal some of those Reagan uh, blue dog Democrats away from Donald Trump, perhaps. I like this. I think this is healthy. But they're, they're already positioning the guns against RFK, putting them on the spot as they did uh, just with the News Nation town hall meeting just the other night uh, where Elizabeth Vargas, I think her name was the uh, the presenter, putting pressure on him. Are you going to accept the result? And will you run, but will you run as an independent uh, if you don't get the nomination as a Democrat? Because they're scared to death that Robert F. Kennedy would run as an independent and take, you know, six or seven percent or or 10 percent or do better than Jill Stein uh, and Gary Johnson did, which would would be devastating uh, for a Biden reelection. So all of these things are to play for right now. I, I'm very excited, very positive that this conversation is happening on both sides of the two party duopoly, um, and that can only be positive. But the, the uh, RFK will come under vicious attacks um, continuously by the media, by the establishment. They will do anything to shut him down, keep him off the debate stage, to, to not have debates full stop, even though that's what the American people want. That's what Democrats, I think, really want. Most Democrats, real Democrats, want to have that debate. They want to see these two candidates go head-to-head, toe-to-toe on these important issues. And ditto for the Republican Party as well. I want to see Donald Trump on the debate stage, not in a jail cell. Uh, so, so mm. we we have a lot we have a lot going on in America. A race, a race against time uh, on that one, as indeed I'm afraid we have lost the race against time. <laughs> Patrick Henningson, thank you for that, and to our other speakers, Richard Medhurst and Anastasia Battle. Thank you to all our speakers. Thank you to Shan and Baz and Raf, who have technically got us. Uh, on the air and any other comrades that I haven't mentioned from the Workers' Party of Britain, which I have the privilege to lead, who have uh, also been busy behind the scenes. But most of all, I thank you, the audience. And I have one request for you. Please, if you have enjoyed what I think has been a feast of discussion, of narrative, of analysis, Please share it with others because that's the way we'll grow. If you like the video, send it to someone else. Like it with the thumbs up on the platform you're on. Subscribe to us. Follow us. No to NATO. No to war. And we'll see you, God willing, at the next meeting. Thank you for watching.